All right, grab your Bibles and open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, We are getting very close to the end of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, So we're going to finish up chapter 12 today. We'll be going through all of chapter 13 next week. Um, And then it's the end. It's on to our next sermon series. Um, Just so to look ahead for our next sermon series, uh, we're going to be going through the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so that's, that sermon series is going to be focused on sort of these character qualities that should form the foundation of our Christian life and our Christian action. The idea being that we need to have a clear idea of what sorts of ideals we should be striving for in this life. Right? We cannot act and flourish by merely focusing on what not to do. We need a positive motivation to aspire to. And so as we look at this fruit, it will provide for us a blueprint on how to organize our lives so that we can produce the fruit of the Spirit. But that's in a few weeks. That's not today. Uh, Today we're going to continue looking um, at Paul and um, the Corinthians, which almost sounds like a band name. Um, Paul and the Corinthians. As we've seen, Paul has been sort of much more emotional and passionate in his um, response in the last few chapters. And today we're going to kind of see a little bit more of why that is. Um, Now Paul has already alluded to some of this, but um, part of what he's dealing with um, is the complicated tensions that are involved for anyone who leads a church and leads a people. Really, some of these are complicated tensions that every Christian has to deal with in their lives. Um, That is to say, as sinners saved by grace, we are forced to live with some dichotomies in this life that never get resolved. Now, this is frustrating. It's frustrating for me uh, because I want life to be sort of simple, straightforward, and clear. I want it to be, do this and everything will be, be well, and that's what I will do. But there's a number of aspects of the Christian life that are sort of these paradoxes that do not go away. You don't outgrow them. You never learn to fix them. They're just there. An example would be the phrase that I just used, sinners saved by grace. Right At no time in our lives will we ever not be a sinner. Right, We never achieve glorification in this life. We are always plagued by the flesh. And so in one sense, we always carry the identity of sinner with us. But we are also saved. Which means our sin no longer separates us from God. It is no longer the main identifier of who we are. Right? When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ and, and we are covered. Now, there will be a day in the future when this is simpler, when everything aligns. We will be remade in glory and we will no longer carry the burden of sin. But that day is not today. Now we have to struggle and live in the tension of both struggling with sin and being assured of our salvation. And neither one negates the other. So when we sin, it should not cause us to question our salvation. And our confidence in the finished work of Christ should not lead us to minimize the offense of sin. So, God is both disgusted by our sin and he accepts us as his people. And there's no amount of theological study or behavioral therapy that's going to do do away with one or the other. We need to live in the tension. Now, this is an important topic because many people are going to encourage you to elevate one over the other, to take one and dismiss 
the other. There are people who are obsessed with sin and the mortification of the flesh and the pursuit of the holy to the extent that the glory of grace gets lost. This way of approaching it um, tends to come across as legalistic and harsh. Now, I think there's even more in our culture um, who promote grace to the extent that righteousness disappears entirely. And so in the name of love, God's standard of goodness is set aside, which comes across in many ways as shallow and makes grace cheap because it does not have the power to produce real change. Now, it's easier for our minds to grasp one or the other, to hold on to one, dismiss the other. But the richness of Christianity is found in struggling through the tension. And so Paul, in this section, is going to point out three contradictions that he holds together. And in this, I hope that you find some peace. Not peace that is, again, I should say, not peace that exists in the absence of conflict, but a peace that understands that some of the conflict that we live and experience um, is good and right and helps us to depend, depend more fully on God, the one who will release us from this tension one day. And so Paul, as we get into it today, is still in this conversation where he's justifying his ministry against the false teachers. And he's using these three paradoxical ideas to, to warn them about picking one side over the other. But he's also in this revealing his heart a little bit. A little bit. In this today, we see that Paul struggles with sitting in the tension. While he knows who he is and what God has called him to, it's very difficult to lead a people to believe and hold on to seeming contradictions. And so he wants us to both feel the conflict while also becoming more confident in God's unchanging truth. So let's get into it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to be starting in verse 11. It says this, it says, I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Uh, Paul begins here with a struggle that every Christian leader faces. Um, That is the balance of authority and inability. What I mean is every single person who has been called into ministry by God carries both a sort of confident compulsion, but also an awareness of weakness. Now the topic of weakness has been the, the, the core of the last few sermons, and for good reason. Paul has been pushing the people to humility. Humility as the means of God's glory being revealed and that, in, in that his strength is accessed. I can't speak. Hold on. The idea is this. Christians should live in humility both as an act of worship to God but also as the way to true power. Paul states it this way. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. But along with this sort of internal fortitude and contentment that Paul experiences, he also sees weakness as giving the people a reason to dismiss him. Right? He's sitting here boasting about weakness, 
while at the same time always arguing for his God-given ministry. And when you read this section, it makes this entire section of Scripture feel very unbalanced. Because Paul calls out boasting while boasting. He tells them not to argue about who is better while making a case for why the gospel that he teaches is better. Paul is willing to call himself more fit than these super apostles while also referring to himself as nothing. And so we see there's this conflict. Which one is it, Paul? Are you going to be humble? Or are you going to claim that the Corinthians should listen to you over all other teachers? Right? You can see it. You can see the challenge. Paul doesn't want to elevate himself to steal glory from God. But he's also seeing that the teachers who are elevating themselves are pulling people away from the true gospel. And so Paul wants to make it clear that there is a difference between those who have been given divine authority by God and those who have not. And so while Paul approaches them in meekness and doesn't take anything from them financially, he sees the other side of this. And the other side of it is that the people don't take him seriously. He wants them to understand that the gospel that he teaches is not just one option among many. He has been called to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to rescue people from the slavery of sin. In this, he has a role in God's plan that is great and powerful. But Paul also knows that he is just a man. And so this is the tension that every faithful pastor carries. The Bible is clear that God equips people to be pastors. And with this, he gives them an authority to lead his people. Because of this, this position should be honored and given weight because it's being taken on as an act of God-serving service. Hebrews thirteen seventeen summarizes saying, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So God has called some people to take on the burden and responsibility of authority, and it is a benefit, and it benefits the people of God to treat this calling with obedience and submission. In other words, sometimes your pastors are given the uncomfortable role of telling you what you don't want to hear. And this is a gift to you. God uses faithful pastors to warn and call out his people in love. Now, I use that phrase, call out, specifically because when it is in that kind of calling out when most people default to the position of kind of taking aim at their pastors. Right? It is at the time when I say, here's something that you should look at that people say, but you're just a man. Can't argue with that. You're sinful just like everyone else. Also true. What gives you the right to tell others what they should and shouldn't do? And to that I say, well, actually, the answer to that is God. Right? God is the one who calls a pastor and tells them to direct the people to God's order and how to apply the gospel. And they can do this confidently knowing that they have an authority from God to do so. Even though, as they do it, they know that they are failing to do it themselves. 
See, if a person's qualifications came from their own ability, if a person's qualifications were about how great they were, like the Corinthians are trying to argue, sin would disqualify every single person. We would have no spiritual leaders. Which it's interesting to see a lot of people who are looking now at uh, qualifications from a human standpoint are going, we should have no spiritual leaders. This is an argument coming out now. We should have no pastors. It should be kind of every person for themselves. There should be no spiritual authority at all in this world because of sin. Which makes sense from a human standpoint going, because there's pastors doing bad things. But it doesn't fit with what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that God empowers people to lead his people. And because God is the one who qualifies and calls his leaders, they can be both humble and confident at the same time. See, one of the character qualifications for elders is that they are above reproach. But that's not a reason to boast. That's simply something to look at and say, God has done certain things in my life to prepare me for his work. And so this is the tension that pastors live in. I need to be bold enough to express the confidence of the message that I proclaim. But also humble enough to make it very clear that I'm just another person. Just another sinner saved by grace. So here at Communion Church, Andrew and I are called to be an example to you, to the people whom we lead. Without allowing ourselves to be elevated and for God's glory to be given to us. See the struggle? And so Paul here is expressing this challenge. He's like, when I'm not bold enough, you follow the stupid idiots who are coming in, right? But if I take that on, I'm going against God and taking on some of his glory for myself. And so Paul says, I should not need to prove myself to you, and doing so isn't going to be healthy. You've seen what God has done through me. Isn't that enough? And in a way, you should feel some sort of frustration and and exasperation coming from Paul here. The people don't want to follow a leader who is weak. But Paul is also not going to compete with the false teachers on their terms. And so he feels stuck. And as he lays this out for them, he even begins to express a little bit of annoyance with them. Um, But as he does, he also wants to reassure them of his love for them. Which leads us to our second tension in verse 14. He says this, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I, will, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding beloved. So in this section, Paul is pushing back against some of the things that are being said about him. Um, they're saying that he, he's crafty, he's deceitful, sort of he's taking advantage of them. They don't quite know how or, or what that looks like, but they know he's up to something. 
But it's, it's actually the exact opposite of what he's doing. As we've seen, he's specifically not taken financial um, uh, giving from them. He has not, he's specifically said, I've come to give you the gospel and take nothing from you. And yet, for whatever reason, they're seeing this through a different lens. They still accuse him of, of, of deceit. Now, this happens all the time when there is distrust between a pastor and a congregation. And honestly, it goes both ways. Um, but I was involved with a situation once where a friend of mine uh, was taking his church through the process of changing their organizational structure. And I don't want to get into all the weeds here, but basically they were moving from being a church where the elders made all the decisions to one where a lot of the decision making was being given back to the members. Um, and in the meeting to discuss this with the congregation, there were people who stood up and accused him of a power grab. They said, they, they said, you're being crafty and deceitful and you're doing this to take more power from us. And he tried to explain to them, no, this is the exact opposite of that. Right? Like, that's exactly what I'm not doing. Um, and yet, those accusations stuck. Now, it's a very confusing thing um, to try to rationally defend yourself from irrational accusations. And like Paul here, really the only thing that you can ever do is sort of present the facts, right? You can kind of go, here's actually what I'm doing, and it's the exact opposite of what you are saying. But in the end, that tends to get you nowhere. Because in the end, there's usually something much deeper going on. There is some other aspect of distrust and conflict that is making it impossible to see eye to eye. And in this, an antagonistic relationship develops between the pastor and the people that he is called to lead. Now, at any time in the church, um, there may be numerous conflicts and relationships like this that exist. Sometimes it's because there's actually been an adversarial um, interaction, right? There's been a back and forth, and there's just kind of this, this tension in the relationship. Other times it is unspoken, Right? Nobody has said anything, but there's something going on. Um, I can say honestly, there are numerous times where I have stood up here to preach, and I am looking out at people who specifically are mad at me, frustrated with me, where we have had kind of a little bit of a tiff recently. Um, There's also some of you who are looking at me in such a way that I wonder if there is something going on that just hasn't been said yet. But to lead and shepherd people over a long period of time means there will be time when sort of disunity and conflict exists. And this is what Paul is facing in Corinth. There's people who are questioning him, slandering him. And I'm sure when he comes to Corinth, there are those people who will not look him directly in the eye as they walk down the street. Some of the people in Corinth are making Paul's life difficult by acting against him. And yet he comes here to say, I love you. Right? This is the dichotomy of this section. Paul has to protect himself from the same people that he is sacrificing himself for. This is one of the tensions that pastors live in. The people that you are called to love will not always be easy to love. And there are times that the people you are called to love will be actively attacking you. Now let's be honest. This isn't limited to pastors at all. This happens all the time for everyone. This is why Jesus called all of his followers to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. None of us have the option of creating simple categories for people that we love and care for and those we don't. 
We all have to struggle to figure out how to get past our justifications for hatred and anger. To be able to show love to people, the ones who least deserve it. But we have to do this. Not because it's easy, but because that we understand that this is the very way in which we were saved. Right? It is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And a sin is not just to do something bad. It doesn't mean that God didn't wait for you to cleanse yourself. It means that Jesus came while we were in active rebellion against him. While we were stealing his glory for ourselves. We were sinning against God. And he looked down and said, those are the people that I'm going to save. The gospel that we rest on is the message of God loving us as we acted against him. And so we must live in this way, not just to pay it forward, but also because we trust that this upside-down way of, of loving is the very way that God is going to work in the hearts of his people. And so as we love those who persecute us, we are sanctified. We are changed. We're being worked on through the Spirit. Of course, in order to do this, you actually have to stay in and live in the conflict. If you leave every relationship you have the moment that there is struggle, you will miss out on the spiritual benefits of conflict, struggle. This is the biggest problem with the cutting toxic people out of your life movement. It's extremely short-sighted. It solves a problem for one moment without actually thinking about what the long-term positive effects of loving your enemies might look like. It's about controlling your life and removing the difficult people so that you don't have to love them, so that you don't have to try to figure out what this looks like. And it takes no trust in God to pull the eject lever the moment people are difficult. Anyone can do that. But what Paul is modeling for us here is the difficult reality of being offended by people and loving them in spite of it. Choosing to keep caring even when people don't respond to that care in an equally loving way. And the analogy that he has kind of mixed in here is this analogy of parents and children. Um, Now he's using this to differentiate kind of the financial responsibility that they have to him versus him to them. But I think the relationship between parents and children is a good way to think about how to love well. Right? Because, speaking of the parents here specifically, there are times when kids do terrible things to their parents. Right? They just don't care. But parents are called to love, to teach, to discipline, and to provide a safe environment for their kids to thrive in. Now, when they are difficult... Right? It may mean that you have to take a different tactic. Right? You might have to change the way that you are caring for them. You might have to provide for them in a slightly different way. But never, never do you get to throw away your responsibility to love them. It can be messy. It can take years. It can be quite painful. But it always makes sense to keep loving and caring towards a more complete and healthy relationship in the future. And here's the biggest difficulty of living in a broken world. It may not work in the long run. Your kids may keep hating you forever. Most grow out of it. Don't worry. But 
You may do everything that you possibly can, and in the end, they want nothing to do with you. But as a parent, your part is always to find whatever way possible to care for your kids. And Paul is stating here that as his spiritual children, those who God has called him to lead and care for, he has a similarly conflicted relationship. He will always keep loving them even if they betray him. Now, as I stated earlier, I think this is helpful for all of us to think about how to navigate our relationships in this life, both with those who we have this very specific relationship and responsibility towards, but also to all people, even to our perceived enemies. We should never be um, comfortable with unhindered hatred. Instead, every relationship in this life should have love as part of it even when we have no idea what it looks like towards certain people. We should struggle to love, even when it it makes some of our relationships less easy to define. Which brings us to our final tension, described by Paul in verse 20. It says, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And so Paul expresses some fear here. um, Fear about what his next interaction with the Corinthians is going to look like. Like the part where he's like, I fear that I may not find you as I wish and that you may not find me as you wish. This comes from the fact that the last time that, that he was there in person, it did not go well. He came to them as their spiritual father, preaching the gospel. He was there to love them, and they rejected him. Now, we don't know the extent of this rejection or the details of that meeting, but he makes it very clear over and over again, it went poorly. And so Paul worries that the same thing might happen again. And he lists out a number of potential problems that could occur. Um, And most likely these are a description of what happened the last time. But along with his fear over whether or not the people will accept him, we see that Paul is concerned with whether or not the people have rejected God. Which is the real struggle. It's not primarily what they think about him, uh, but whether or not they hear and respond to the message that he brings. And so we see here that even as Paul fears and worries, he's confident in the truth of God. And so this is the conflict that we see in this third section. Paul is aware of God's order and work, but he has anxiety about how it's going to work out. In a sense, we see Paul fears man, but he fears God much more. And so along with this trepidation, we see a confidence in Paul that rests on God's truth, where he knows that God will do exactly as he plans. Now, this is important for us, because in this life you will fear. And while people want to apply simple answers and verses uh, to sort of paper over the anxiety, the truth is we sort of have to sit in and live with that fear a good portion of the time. This passage, I think, goes against the way that some people present faith. That faith is sort of this trust without any doubt. 
No, you will doubt. You will be faced with difficulties in this life. Things that make you question what you ultimately believe. This is part of the human existence. There are a lot of things that we are unsure of. And at times, um, no matter what way things go, it seems they're going to go in a negative way. But in the midst of all of this unknown, we are not left with nothing. We are not on our own to navigate this sinful world. No, we have a heavenly Father who has given us his word and told us to live in line with his order and produce his good. I say this because it has become very common for people to abandon the clear teaching of God when faced with fear. I've seen pastors and Christian leaders and members of the church willing to change the truth of God out of a fear that it will not work in this cultural moment. In a desire to remove the the tension and the anxiety, they've set the truth of God aside. But as Christians, we have to always carry the known and the unknown, the doctrine and the mystery, that which God has given us clearly and that which he has purposely not told us. God intentionally does not give us every answer and does not remove the struggle. And he does this so that we keep coming back to him in dependence. He gives us exactly what we need to know that he is the answer. Now, as human beings, again, we want it clearer. We want it simpler. I'll give you an example of something that comes up for me every once in a while um, that relates to this. Um, When a person passes away, um, people always want to know, are they in heaven or are they in hell? Um, Now, God certainly gives us a way to test our own faith and and to develop assurance in our own life, right? We can have a confidence of where we are going. But most of the time for me, it's family members kind of bringing to me a case for someone and saying like, tell us, which is super awkward. It's awkward for a lot of reasons. One, because... I often don't know how accurate the details are that they're presenting to me. I don't know what they're leaving out. But the other part of it is, I also know that they are looking for comfort more than they're looking for clarity. They don't actually want to know the answer to that question half the time. They're just looking for something that is going to bring comfort in the situation that they're currently in. Now, I can tell them what they want to hear, and I know a lot of people who would simply do that. Comfort is the right answer here, so everybody's going to heaven. Yay! But to do that would be declare something that I just don't know. And so what I do is I always default to that which I can be sure of. I tell them they are in the hands of a loving and good God. And if you trust God, then what he deems necessary and right becomes your idea of good. The fact that God is in control is actually a more satisfying answer than heaven or hell. So as we face our fears, we can do it knowing that no matter what we do not know, we have a God who is ultimate. And knowing that we have a God who is ultimate, who is working out all things according to his plan, means that we can have confidence while being humble. 
We can love those who may not love us in return. And we can practice the truth of God even when we aren't sure how it's all going to work out. And I would add, even when it seems like it's not working out in any specific moment. One of the practices that we follow in humble obedience to God is simply to practice being the church. Right? To come here every week, to sing, to pray, to hear the word, and to receive communion. Now, there will be times in your life when you look at all these pieces and you go, is this working? Isn't there a better way to do this? Can we reverse engineer this? Maybe we can speed up the process a little bit. Does this have any power at all? To sit in the tension is to come back again and again, not because you understand it, not because you can measure it, but because the God behind all of this has promised that he will build us up and give us strength through these actions. And so as you come forward to communion today, I'd say approach the table in tension. As someone who does not deserve this, and yet can come. As someone who isn't entirely sure how Jesus fills us and builds us up in communion, but who knows they need it. Come as a sinner, saved by grace. Come because Jesus invites all who are weary and heavy laden and promises that he will give you rest. Let's pray.